wisdom is a gracious gift from God. And this gracious gift of wisdom always accompanies genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Are there clear, defining characteristics of the wisdom that comes from heaven? And to the contrary, are there defining characteristics from wisdom that originates from hell? Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part seven for us of his current series titled Wisdom from Hell versus Wisdom from Heaven looking at the topic of wisdom through the Apostle James' letter in chapter 3. Today we'll begin our look at heaven's wisdom, the wisdom from God as revealed in His Word. You'll discover the standard of whether or not you are truly wise, the litmus test, if you will, found by examining your own heart for purity. Because if you're truly wise, you'll find your heart as one characterized by purity. Now, what does it mean to be pure of heart? What exactly is this virtue? And how does it look when lived out day by day? Let's find out as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. We live in a culture that is drunk with sexual idolatry. And this idol of the nation confronts us in a variety of ways, and it comes to us through a variety of channels. There are any number of issues that we could use to address it this morning. The one that comes first to mind is, and one of the most common, is through television. I read some statistics this week that are frankly alarming. A.C. Nielsen tells us that the average American watches more than four hours of television each day. That's 28 hours a week, or two months nonstop TV watching per year. Two months, 24 hours a day is what essentially the average American watches in television in a year's time. In a 65-year life, that means the average person will have spent nine years glued to the tube. Unfortunately, not only is that amusement, you know the word amusement means without musing, that is without thinking, it's entertainment, it's not thinking at all, but it's more harmful than that because cable and satellite television have begun to stream into our homes programs that would never have been allowed on the airwaves even 20 years ago. 70% of all shows have some sexual content averaging five sexual scenes per hour. That means the average TV watcher watching four hours a day sees 20 sexual scenes a day, 140 a week, are 7,000 in a year's time. So certainly one of the ways the idol of sexual idolatry is worshipped in our society is through television. But perhaps the greatest enemy to moral purity for most Christians, and the major, perhaps we could even say the predominant contributor to the moral and sexual slide of our times, is what can be a very helpful tool and is to many of us but can also have a terribly dark side, and that's the Internet. Men, for example, around 65% of men today are looking at pornography on the Internet more than once a week. 
and this one shocked me, frankly. It's becoming much more prevalent problem among women. Today's Christian Woman magazine asked its readers about whether they use pornography. 34% of the women responded that they had intentionally sought out pornography on the Internet. According to the Nielsen net ratings, nearly one in three visitors to adult websites is female. Nielsen estimated that 9.4 million women in the United States accessed pornography online in a one-month period a year ago. But not just men and women, the problem goes to young people as well. In fact, this is alarming, the largest group of viewers of internet pornography are young people between the ages of 12 and 17. There is an elephant standing in the middle of our culture and we go on our merry way. You add to all those statistics a growing general acceptance across all strata of society an acceptance of sexual sins and perversions as normal. Things are joked about now on news radio, I heard the other day, that would not have been brought up as a topic of conversation 20 years ago. It's not that it didn't exist. I'm not longing for the good old days in that sense. It certainly existed. Mankind has always been sinful. But it wasn't brought out in the light of day and joked about in settings like that. We have a society that is pursuing sexual sin and sexual idolatry with reckless abandon. It certainly makes fighting for our purity as Christians a difficult thing. And yet I'm here to tell you this morning that however bad our culture is, and it certainly is reflected even in the statistics I just shared with you, it is not as bad as the Greek and Roman culture in Asia Minor in the first century. You see, we don't have pagan temples in all of our communities where our co-workers and our friends and our family members go to consort with temple prostitutes supposedly as a good and wholesome expression of worship to that God. But those were exactly the circumstances, along with all of the other debauchery that were part of the world into which those Jewish believers who at one time had set under James' ministry in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem church, that is the situation to which they had been scattered through persecution and found themselves in the middle of that kind of sin, scattered into Asia Minor. And James, their former pastor now, writes them a letter to deal with all of the issues that they're facing. That's the context, the cultural context, of the words that we examine this morning as we come to a section where we learn about purity, the kind of purity that true wisdom produces in our lives. Let me read it to you again. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace 
by those who make peace. In this paragraph, James, as we've discovered over the last several weeks, James explains that in our world there are two kinds of wisdom. There is wisdom from God revealed in His Word, and then there's everything else that purports to be wisdom that finds itself in disagreement with God, and that is not true wisdom. It's not biblical wisdom. It is, in fact, a false kind of wisdom. It is wisdom from hell itself. Last week, we looked at verses 14 to 16, or the last time we looked at this passage together. We looked at verses 14 to 16, and we saw several things there in James' analysis of hell's wisdom, that is, of the wisdom that originates not from God, but from his enemies. In verse 14, we discovered the chief characteristics of hell's wisdom. You see, whatever form human wisdom may take, you can always recognize it by this. It always has two dominant characteristics in the human heart, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. James says, ransack your heart. If you think you're spiritually wise, or to use Paul's language, if you think you're spiritually mature, then see if you find a consistent pattern of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and we looked at those at length a couple of weeks ago, and if you find that those are consistently a part of who you are, then it doesn't matter how much you know, it doesn't matter how spiritual other people think you are, you in fact are not spiritually wise, you are not spiritually mature, it's a charade, and you have bought into the counterfeit even if it has a religious look to it, even if other people think you are religious, you've bought into the counterfeit wisdom, the wisdom from hell itself. He also shows us in verses 14 to 16, we looked at it together, not only the chief characteristics of hell's wisdoms, but also of hell's wisdom rather, but also the origin or source of it. Verse 15, it is earthly, it is natural, that is unspiritual, and it is even demonic, that is all Wisdom, all that purports to be wisdom that is in opposition to what God reveals in His Word, and our world is full of it, it is full of that false kind of wisdom. It is, in fact, from hell itself. It is spawned by demons, by those opposed to God. And verse 16, it has deadly results. Disorder, that refers to disputes, rebellion against authority, and every evil thing. You see, jealousy and selfish ambition give energy to and express themselves in disputes and arguments and rebellion against God's authority and the authority He's placed in our lives, and they express themselves in every imaginable kind of sin. That's hell's wisdom. Today, we begin our look at heaven's wisdom, the wisdom from heaven. In verses 17 and 18, James provides us here with the corresponding analysis of heaven's wisdom. We've received an analysis of hell's wisdom. Now let's look at heaven's wisdom. And he essentially deals with the same issues that he dealt with related to the wisdom opposed to God. He begins in verse 17 with the source of heaven's wisdom. In verse 15, he describes hell's wisdom as that wisdom which is not coming down from above. So he begins verse 17 with a transition. But the wisdom from above. He says, now I'm going to tell you about 
what true godly wisdom looks like and where it comes from. He says, I want you to know that this wisdom comes down from above. By telling us that, he wants us to know that this wisdom that he's going to talk about now has its source in God, and it comes to us as a gift of God's grace. You remember chapter 1, verse 5, we're told that in the midst of trials, if any of us lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously. God gives wisdom. In verse 17 of James 1, every good thing given... And every perfect gift is from above. What do you mean, James? It's coming down from the Father of lights. He says, I want you to know the wisdom I'm about to talk about comes from God. It has its source in God, and He gives it as a gift of grace. I'm reminded of Solomon. You know, in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29, we're told that God gave Solomon wisdom. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord gives wisdom from His mouth knowledge and understanding. True wisdom is a gracious gift from God. And this gracious gift of wisdom always accompanies genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 7 and listen to Christ himself explain this. Matthew chapter 7, as he concludes the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ends with an illustration. And in verse 24 of Matthew 7, You'll remember these words, often taken out of their context, often distorted, but you've heard them. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, that is, the one who who truly believes in me, who truly becomes my disciple, who obeys me, he may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus says, You want to be wise? Here's where it starts. It starts by doing what I've told you to do, by becoming my disciple. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24, to those who are called, that is, to those whom God has drawn out to himself, those in whom God has produced repentance and faith, to those who are called, Paul says, Christ is the wisdom of God. That's how we receive this gift of wisdom. It comes along with our genuine faith in Christ. So having identified the source, God himself, James now moves on to describe it. In verse 17, notice the chief characteristic of heaven's wisdom. You remember the chief characteristics of hell's wisdom? Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. But notice verse 17. He identifies One chief characteristic of heaven's wisdom. The wisdom that is truly from above, he says, is first pure. Now isn't it interesting that this too is a kind of self-test. He's saying, you think you're wise, verse 13, you think you're understanding? Then take this test. See if you consistently find bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. If you find those then you're not spiritually wise, you're not spiritually mature, you've bought into some sort of counterfeit. Here's another test. Ransack your heart and see if there's purity there. Isn't it interesting that this is a self-test because only you know if these things reign really in your heart. 
You can put on a show. You can fool us all. But you've got to ask yourself, what's going on in your heart? John Blanchard, commentator on the book of James, writes, what James chooses as the fundamental criterion of wisdom is not an outward expression, but an inner experience. He examines our hearts before he looks at our hands. He is primarily concerned with what we are and only then with what we do. Now when you look at the structure of verse 17, it's obvious that James really wants to punctuate. He intends to drive home this word pure. He wants it to stand out. Look at the words on each side of it. In English as in Greek. First. First, pure. The word first does not mean chronologically first. The word literally means chief, foremost, of first importance. And then notice then, which comes after the word pure. Then. This word means thereafter, afterwards. You see, James is going to list seven more qualities after this one. But he wants us to know that this word pure is the clearest test and the primary test to see if we're truly, genuinely spiritual people, if we're genuinely, biblically wise. James is obviously talking here about identifying the person who is wise. Verse 13, he introduces us to that. So when he says that wisdom is pure, what he's saying is this. If you want to know whether or not you're really wise, then look in your heart for purity. Because if you're really wise, you will find it characterized, your heart that is, by purity. Now what does it mean to be pure? What exactly is this virtue? The Greek word that's translated pure comes from the same root as the New Testament word for holy. Back in the Septuagint, this word pure was used primarily to describe something that was free from ceremonial defilement. In other words, it was used of purity in the sense of being free from some defect that would keep you from coming into the presence of God or of something being used in the service of God. But that's not its primary sense in the New Testament. When you come to the New Testament, this word pure has two primary senses. And I think both of them are implied in what James is teaching us here. Both senses of this word pure are found in one text. And I want you to turn there, and over the next few minutes, keep your finger there. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 1, Paul is in the process of defending his apostleship, and he says, you know, bear with me while I do this. And here's why he says I'm defending my, my apostleship, not for my own namesake, but I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I, and here he uses an interesting picture. He sees himself as the one presenting the bride. He says, I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I may present you as a, and here's our word, pure virgin. Now obviously Paul goes on in verse 3 to describe the fact that he's talking about philosophies here. He's talking about ideologies which would draw them away from the simplicity of devotion to Christ. But what I want you to see is how he uses this word pure. pure. He uses it in the context of moral and sexual purity. 
Here is a virgin coming to her wedding, and I want to present her, you, the Corinthian church, I want to present you as a pure virgin. That is, morally and sexually free from sin. That's the first sense in which this word pure is used. It is moral or sexual purity. Richard Trench, in his book on synonyms of the New Testament, defines it this way. He says, it is predominantly employed to express freedom from fleshly impurities which defile both body and spirit. In other words, pure or purity is the exact polar opposite of, and you'll recognize this Greek word, porneia. It's a word which includes all forms of sexual sin. Any deviation from God's sexual standard. Purity is the exact opposite of that. It has no taint of anything like that in it. No pollution whatsoever. This is, of course, characteristic of God Himself, this highest level of separation from sin of any kind. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, the, the prophet says to God, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Listen, God has not one time laughed about things that are evil. God has not one time countenanced anything in His eternal mind that spots or stains His holy character. John, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, says God is light, and in Him is no darkness, no none at all. There is nothing but blazing light in the presence of God, not one slight shadow of a stain on His character. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, we read that God is pure, and He uses this word, God is pure, He's untainted by anything. When we come to faith in Christ, the Bible tells us that we are made new, that we become partakers in the divine life, 1 Peter 1. So it shouldn't surprise us, listen carefully, that since moral purity is present in God, that it becomes, once we come to take of His life, it becomes characteristic even of new Christians. You remember the Beatitudes that Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with. The Beatitudes sort of map the journey of spiritual progress of the soul from sin to Christ. And it begins, of course, with blessed are the who? The poor in spirit. It begins with spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are those who come to the end of themselves. That's where salvation begins. And then it moves on to those who mourn because of their sin. Those who are made meek and humble because they realize they have nothing to plead before God. And eventually you come to Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, where it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This quality of purity is accomplished by a thorough cleansing from the guilt and stain of sin on the soul at the moment of salvation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, a passage we'll come back to in a few moments, Paul talks about the fact that we were all of these terrible things, all of these litany of sins he lists, and he says, but you were washed. That's what happens at salvation. 
were washed. In John 13, verse 10, Jesus describes it as having a bath. He says to the disciples, you're all clean because you've had a bath. Your souls have been bathed. And now all you need to do is to have your feet washed as you pick up the dirt of the world. This cleansing from the guilt and stain of sin on our souls is made possible by the death of Jesus Christ as the substitute of the believing sinner. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part seven of his series, Wisdom from Hell versus Wisdom from Heaven. Tom will have part eight for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.